Politics and current affairs. Backchat. 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 Backchat here on FBI. It's Saturday, November 28th, and we're here to break down the news you don't want to miss. Before we begin today, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Gadigal land and pay our respects to elders past and present. I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. And I'm Rebecca Maneboog, stepping in for Chantel today. First up, we have the Asylum Seeker Resource Center's Jana Favero discussing discussing how hundreds of refugees are facing deportation in the next few months. After that, it's a roundtable with Nine producer Andrew Rickett about whether we're finally at the end of this pandemic, especially with Victoria opening up again. But as always, we want to hear from you. Do you think Australia has finally won the COVID war? Let us know by texting 0409-945-945 or tweet us at BackchatFBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. Back in September, over 500 refugees in community detention received letters from Home Affairs telling them they'd soon be on a final departure bridging visa and expected to leave Australia in six months. Refugees have been hit hard during the pandemic, with thousands becoming unemployed and even homeless. And now, on top of imminent deportation, their support structures have also been cut. Joining us to discuss the situation is Jana Favero, Director of Advocacy and Campaigns with the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Jana, thanks for having us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. That's all good. What's the current situation for hundreds of refugees who have received these letters? Yeah, so the current situation is one that's pretty dire, to be honest. These are refugees who were transferred from Papua New Guinea or Nauru. They're refugees who are subjected to offshore processing. So they are in Australia because they've required medical treatment uh, and or a member of their family has required medical treatment. And rather than providing that medical treatment, the government has decided to move them into the community onto a final departure bridging visa which leaves them without any level of support at all. They are currently receiving some housing support, some income support and casework support. They now on these new visas do have the right to work and right to study, but in the middle of a pandemic, um, many are expected to now be able to fend for themselves, which we all know will be impossible, especially as COVID-19 is, we just seem to be emerging from it. Um, So it's a really devastating situation for the men, women and children who are being subjected to it. So what options do these refugees have about where they go once they're made to leave Australia? Oh, they really have very little options. I mean, as we know, the punitive policy of the Australian government is that refugees are but pawns on a giant chessboard which the government controls. Um, We're hoping not even to get to that point. Um, because people who have arrived seeking safety in Australia and on our shores deserve to have their rights upheld and to be processed accordingly. So we're hoping to, I mean, our biggest fear at the moment is just how they're going to survive day-to-day living in the community being abandoned by the government. So what if none of their deportation options are safe for them? Well, then the Australian government is putting people's lives at risk and it seems to be something um, that they are quite happy and willing to do. I mean, that is why you have got peak refugee organisations, medical organisations, UNHCR organisations all calling for people seeking asylum refugees to be treated more fairly in Australia. We do have obligations to uphold. 
um, so far people have been moved onto these final departure bridging visas and the government has been using them for years. So it seems to be more of a threat than a reality about actually moving to deport people, but in saying that I also don't put much past Minister Dutton, um, but even just having the threat of being removed, only being on a temporary visa, I mean, anyone knows if you're going for a job and someone says, oh, you're on a final departing bridging visa, that's probably a very easy way to just get excluded from even being considered for a position, so therefore then you have no income, you're living in the community with your family and, and expected to survive on nothing because they're not eligible for any social security payments either. So not only is there the fear of being removed, um, but given that no one has been removed over years, I mean, these final departure bridging visas were first used for the group of people transferred to Manus in 2017. They are still living in the community and are still relying on advocates and charities to help them survive. So what differences are there between uh, the living and working conditions of refugees uh, that they previously had in community detention compared to the conditions of the new final departure visas? So while people are in community detention, um, they are provided with with housing, they're provided with casework support and income support in recognition that they are people who may have certain vulnerabilities or in certain situations where they they also were not allowed to work or study or access to any English tuition. So with the final departure bridging visas, they now have the right to work and study, which is great because many of them want to be able to work and study But in the reality of the COVID environment, when they have not been allowed to work or study for up to the past eight years, they receive a letter. With that letter, their income support is cut off immediately and they have three weeks to move out of their housing and secure their own housing. It means that after seven years of uncertainty, a year of being living during COVID-19 and disruption, families then, many of them will have to be forced to move. They'll have to try and move to a place where they can find cheaper rent or somewhere where they can get accommodation provided by one of the many charities across Australia who are now scrambling to support this group. So there are some good things about being moved onto final departure bridging visa because of the work and study rights, but the lack of other supports around it really is quite astounding during a pandemic, at the tail of a pandemic, during a recession, and they have already been subjected to seven years of lives in limbo and uncertainty. I mean, one example of one of the people who's being moved is an elderly grandmother. She's over 80 years old. She has a medical condition, and now she's being moved into the community. How will she find work? How will she survive? It's complete callousness by the government. So how is this? how would you say this has impacted individuals and families Oh, it's absolutely devastating. I mean, people have already started to be moved in Queensland, New South Wales and South Australia or are expecting to be moved soon in Victoria. The moves in Victoria were put on hold when the second wave occurred. But people, I mean, they're living in fear because they're going to be without a home, without any income support and just literally abandoned on the street. So people are really afraid. They're scared. Many of them have medical conditions and while they will receive... Medicare it will be insufficient to cover the conditions and specialist report they require. So, I mean, I think as any of us would feel, if we had we stopped getting any income one day and then we're told we had three weeks to find alternative accommodation with no income support and a job, I think we can all imagine how shocking that would feel. And that's exactly the same for these men, women and children. And those individuals will have to now turn to charities who are already completely overloaded and overwhelmed because refugees and people seeking asylum were not eligible for any entitlements under COVID-19. So you've already got a sector that's 
absolutely a breaking point with advocates and charities supporting people. So, I mean, it's just it's devastating on, on those individuals. They have um, been subjected to, to seven years of having their lives in the hands of our government and they have not been treated fairly. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio. We're speaking to Asylum Seeker Resource Centre's Jana Favero about the hundreds of refugees facing deportation in the next few months. We understand that many had previously been on Nauru or in PNG and came to Australia for medical reasons. Why do you think this particular group was sent these letters? Oh, uh, I really have to stop trying to guess what the government does and why <laughs> they do things because it's just constantly punitive and, you know, you would think that during a pandemic would be the one time they could find compassion to extend to everyone. Um, look, the government is saying that it's because this group of people in particular haven't engaged in the US process, but that's just the government um, putting up arguments that have, have no substance. Many people didn't engage in the US process because they were scared, because they didn't understand it, because at the time it seemed certain nationalities and countries would be banned from the US process with the US travel ban for, for certain uh, Muslim countries. It was a time of turmoil in PNG and Nauru. And we also know that the refugee determination process probably wasn't as fair as we would have liked to see it. So the government is just... I honestly believe they are just seeking to punish people who arrived on our shores by boat seeking asylum. We've seen it time and time again. And it's on top of a raft of other changes this year. I mean, in the current budget... It's halved our humanitarian program for resettlement of refugees, um, a $1.2 billion forward forecasting spending on offshore processing. Like The government seemed to be really good at spending money and putting in policies that harm refugees and cutting money and bringing in policies um, where, where there are monies that would help refugees, such as resettlement. So I, I can't get in the mind of the government or Peter Dutton or Scott Morrison, but I do know the impact is devastating um, and will force people into, into poverty. So what can we do to help? Oh, first of all, please get fired up. There is so much that people can do to help. Um, the most powerful thing really is to contact your local federal member. I know many people don't think that that has impact anymore, but it certainly does. When we're lobbying in Canberra, politicians will meet with us if they have been hearing from their communities about these issues. So even if you have got a local member who is great on the issue, call them, write to them and tell them to please keep advocating for the fair treatment of people seeking asylum and refugees. If you have a politician who is part of the government or more punitive policies, please write to them and tell them they need to change. It real People power is what we're relying on. There is also a new national campaign, a sector campaign with over 100 organisations called Time for a Home, which has been launched, which focuses on looking for the immediate release from detention of refugees who came from Manus and Nauru and also permanent resettlement options. So that does include this group specifically because they have been transferred from Manus and Nauru. So if you look up timeforahome.com.au, there are a range of actions you can take under that. But please, first and foremost, contact your local member uh, then join on to the Time for a Home campaign are two things that you could do immediately to help and even volunteer and donate to your local um, refugee or asylum seeker support agency, whether it's in Sydney or if people happen to be, you know, listening from other states to, to please donate the asylum seeker centres in Sydney are great as a Jesuit refugee service. So volunteer, donate and take action are the three things that people can do. Absolutely. Thank you, Jana, for your time.
No problem. Thank you for putting a spotlight on this important issue. Absolutely. That was Director of Advocacy and Campaigns with the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, Jana Favero, on forced visa changes for hundreds of refugees. Stay tuned, y'all, because after the break, we're chucking a That's So Raven and chatting about what could be the end of the coronavirus pandemic. Andrew Rickon from Nine News will be chiming in for it. But for now, let's show some love to the 6-7. This is Send It, a newbie by Hooligan Hefts. Language warning, love. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. You're listening to Back Chat on FBI 94.5 with Beck and Shami. This week, Victoria officially became COVID-free after a month of no new cases. So congratulations, Victoria. But it's not just our neighbours below. Across the whole country, restrictions are easing and interstate borders are opening up right in time for Chrissy To help us unpack what's happening in the world of Ms. Rona after nearly 12 months of hell, we're joined by Nine News producer Andrew Rickett. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for joining us. Andrew, you there? You with us? I'm here. Okay, good. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. So, uh, December 1st, people in New South Wales will be able to have 50 guests at their home. Um, But there are conditions, right? Yes. Yes, there are. Can you you outline a few of them for us? Um, Yeah, well... No, actually, I can't. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, so... Well, as it stands, uh, you can have 50 guests over as long as they're outdoors. Um, But if they're indoors, it's a little bit crazy. You still have to socially distance, which feels a bit ironic to me. Um, But uh, all of these suggestions, 50 people is a lot of people to have in a home. It feels like we're back to normal a little bit. So would you say the pandemic is kind of over in Australia? Yeah, well... What, yesterday we had um, the, the Thursday numbers, which was the first time in nearly two months there was zero in the community, but also zero in hotel quarantine, right? So that's in, in New South Wales, it's, it's what, 20, 19, 20 days now. In Victoria, they've reached elimination, and it's just South Australia who uh, are, are following up their last cluster. So it's, it's really looking like most states are kind of have got on top of it with their restrictions, and, and especially, you know, you look at Melbourne and what they've been through. Um, and the question is then, how do we reopen and how do these states deal with um, reopening and the, and the challenges that come with that um, really based on um, based on this, how they struggled in the, in the first place with hotel quarantine and the virus escaping and, and getting into the community that way? How do they deal with those new issues once we start reopening to the rest of Australia, but we, the rest of the world is still going through this, this pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for myself, I'm a, like I love going to music festivals, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners do. Um, with the easing of restrictions, do you think there are like ways that we could go on with um, live gigs and festivals and so on? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you already see like um, you have the Great Southern um, the, the Great Southern Gigs program that like um, is is bringing stuff back in New South Wales, and already you've got seated concerts and and seated viewing sessions and, and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's definitely, you know, even at the moment, it's um, it's starting to come back. But you look at New Zealand and you see um, New Zealand or Western Australia and you already see people are at nightclubs and, and partying and, and people are back to their you know, normal, in, in quotes, lives. And I think definitely if there's, 
you know, controls in place and people are still mindful about it, that there, there definitely are ways to, to, to go back to these events that were definitely the first things that were, were, were cut off during the, um, during the pandemic. I think so. I think it's really interesting that New Zealand's doing so well and they're having a life again. And then there are other countries in Europe that aren't doing well at all, but they're still having a wonderful active life. I have friends from the Middle East who've travelled to Europe and friends from Europe who've literally relocated across the continent. Uh, but whereas I, I can't go on a basic holiday, I can't visit family overseas, I can't relocate for work even. Um, do you think there's some kind of uh, kind of double standard and a lack of consistency around how we're managing this pandemic right now? Well, I think, I mean, you look, you just have to look at airlines. Like you had this week, you had two different announcements um, you had in Australia Qantas saying that they're going to um, people must be vaccinated to to travel in, in international flights. So that's Australian Airlines kind of making that clear, and the Australian government following that with um, uh, the it looking like national cabinet will make uh, make it uh, a decision, and the Australian government make a decision that Australians returning might even have to get vaccinations um, to to return or prove that they're sorry uh, test test COVID tests. Um, to, and test negative to prove that they can return to Australia. So you have those those kind of announcements about international travel to and from Australia. And meanwhile, you have the announcement um, that there are the, the first flights between the US and um, Europe, the first flights have been announced that will have no quarantine restrictions at all. So you'll be able to fly from certain destinations um, without any kind of restrictions back to, back to normal. Obviously, there are restrictions on the plane and and less capacity and, and, you know, some measures at airports and you can wear a mask if you want. But already there's kind of corridors opening up around the rest of the world in places that are still have surging case numbers. You look at the US on Thanksgiving yesterday, they recorded 100,000 new cases still, but they're opening travel corridors. So I don't think it's a double, I think obviously there's a double standard, but I still think that the measures that have been taken in Australia and New Zealand and the countries that we're opening travel with, you know, Singapore, um, other other countries, uh, uh, have worked. And so I think the standard is is acceptable for us. And obviously, we can debate that if it's acceptable or not. But it's it it's, it's so far our standards have pre- prevented a mass uncontrollable spread of the virus. Jumping on that um, no jab, no fly um, thing that you mentioned, I remember seeing Qantas saying that and there was so much outrage. And me being an asthmatic queen and I'm wanting to travel, I'm just, I'm so for this vaccine. I'd love to know what your thoughts are on it um, and that policy of having to fly and you have to get the vaccine. Like, I want to know what you have to say about that. Well, yeah, I think there's heaps of discussion and heaps of debate, um, you know, especially public debate about the vaccine. uh, But... You see, there's there's so many. There's three different candidates that are being worked on in kind of Australia is is, is considering, and there's there's the other ones. Then you have the Russian Sputnik vaccine and the, uh, the the vaccine that China's been working on as well. And so you have a whole range of them. The results have been coming out. Sorry, uh, Sputnik vaccine time. just sounded hilarious as a concept. <laughs> I'm sorry, it just sounds like we're back to like 1969 and racing for the moon again, but instead people's lives are at risk. Um, just wanted to add some perspective there. Um, uh, just really interesting topic I think we should discuss is whether companies should be making decisions like that or whether the government should, because it really feels like travel is now um, being controlled by by airlines who have these no jab, no fly policies versus governments who should be enforcing these kind of health uh, parameters. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it's a tough, it's a tough ask. It's a, it's a tough balance. I mean, like in, 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 you definitely have, you know, you have laws, you have um, things in, in the rest of society that are influenced by companies. But this is freedom of movement, and it's a very delicate balance. And obviously, as an Australian citizen, you should have the the right to return home. You should have the right to come back to Australia. And so it is. It is a super delicate balance. Even if the government is is legislating something that's saying you can't come back without a, a negative COVID test, it's it's something that really needs to be questioned because, um, yeah, there are a lot of questions about um, influence and that kind of stuff. And it's coming from all areas. You know, you have that came from South Australia because they asked, as part of the review of, of how their uh, outbreak happened, they asked for that measure. They they asked that can national cabinet consider this, and that, and that's what it looks like will happen. So. Um, yeah, you have the influences coming from you know, every every part of society. Businesses really want to reopen, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, it is it is a very delicate balance and needs to be questioned. But in fact, we got a text in, isn't that right, back? Yeah, we did. While on the topic of jabbity jabs, um, our question, our text is in from Michaela from Lewisham, who texted in saying, "Is there a reason they're not just telling us about the vaccine once it's done? Why do we need to hear about all these updates? We'd love to hear your thoughts on that." Yeah, I mean, we. I guess it's a it it is a it's a big thing. You know, people people are craving news about it. Like people are, people want updates. You you have kind of the news today that looks like uh, Australia may have the first people receiving the vaccine in March. You know, people people have gone through uncertainty since end of end of uh, start of February. You know, around that time, uh, they've gone through complete uncertainty. You know, you, you have people in Victoria look at how how their lives have changed. People just want a bit of certainty and a bit of kind of a, a reassurance, and that's that's kind of where the demand and and drive for that amount of information comes from. And I think that's reasonable. Uh, but yeah, it's reasonable as well to be like, look, I don't want to have to deal with this every day. I don't want my I don't want to hear about whether it's you know ninety two percent or ninety three percent. That's that, yeah, that's fair as well. So speaking of the deep uncertainty, a lot of people are facing uh, nearly thirty seven thousand Australians. Australians have been struck. Have been struck. I'm sorry. It's just, the pandemic has really gotten to me here. <laughs> thirty seven thousand Australians are stuck overseas, and eight thousand are in vulnerable situations. Um, it just seems like it just feels like we're we're kind of turning to the government for a lot of help. This is their chance to just step up they've been elected to do one job and yet they're struggling um and then me as an economics student i've i kind of have a lot of empathy for the fact that our government is really really poor right now like it's strange that all of these big uh, countries that we kind of rely on to really be there for us are in so much debt and don't seem to have the funds to help the people they need to help so how do you think we're going to possibly navigate the big economic um, like massive storm that we're in and how we're going to navigate that even now during the pandemic. I thought it was going to be a problem in the future after the pandemic, but it seems to be one that's crawling up on us now whilst people are sick. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that was the question when we went at the start of the pandemic, do you lock down and, and the critics of, of lockdowns and the critics of, of um, shutting down the economy and closing venues and all that kind of stuff. That was the argument that they'll lose their revenue and, and all that kind of thing. But I think you know that's the it was the cost of saving lives, and you can't really put a price on, on on that. And I think that is the 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 role of the of the government in some situations is to get out the checkbook and fix the problem. And I think you would you would see that in certain situations. You know, if you're putting out a fire, you know, putting out someone's house, you're not going to ask how much it costs. If you're saving someone's life in a hospital, I mean, 
Yes, we ask how much it costs, especially looking at American stuff, but that question doesn't come until after you've saved their life. And I think that's where, that's kind of an apt metaphor, is that you don't, you don't ask how much these things cost until after you've saved the person's life and after all that kind of stuff. You, the problem needs to be solved first, and then, then you, you look at it afterwards. And it will be, it will be something that we, we probably have to consider, um, you know, for a long time, the, the, the economic impacts of this. But at the same time, there's been the, the, the huge borrowing potential the governments, you know, money has never been uh, cheaper to borrow and to, to, to spend kind of recovery projects. So it, it'll have to be delicately managed on the way out, but it's definitely possible. And you see it now with the, you know, the infrastructure projects and the, the things being announced to kind of pump money back into the economy uh, in, in resourceful and, and effective ways. That's a really great point, Andrew. Uh, we really could be discussing this all day. Thank you so much for your time with us. Oh, thank you very much. That was Andrew Rick from Nine News helping us unpack just what the post-Rona future might look like in this country. And that's all the time we have on the show today, Beck. We'll catch you next week at 9.30... Sorry. We'll catch you next week at 9.30am next Saturday. But before we go, we've got one last song up our sleeves. And this one goes out for the Bobs with the 10-year anniversary of the Pink Friday. This is Moment for Life by Nicki Minaj, Chun-Li, Miss Megatron. This show was brought to you by... This is, we've had a strange tech day, guys. I'm real sorry. Sorry. Here we are. Anyway, this show was brought to you by Tanita Rizagi, Millie Roberts, and Eamon Snow. Uh, have a great weekend. But to live doesn't mean you're alive. Don't worry about me.